Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Ben Folds is known for being a talented musician and songwriter, but he also performs a vital role for the music community as an arts advocate. In a conversation with Drew Lippman, Ben discusses his experience navigating the political arena and talks about how issues important to the arts community transcend party lines. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm David Reed, a senior policy advisor here at Brownstein and team lead for our client, Americans for the Arts. I'm also thrilled to be joined here today by our special guest, musical performing artist, Ben Folds. Ben Folds is widely regarded as one of the major music influencers of our generation. But what many may not know is that he's also active and engaged in political advocacy. Ben's an outspoken champion for arts education and music therapy funding in our nation's public schools and is an active member of the Distinguished Artist Committee of Americans for the Arts. With that, I'll hand it off to my colleague, Drew Littman, a policy director here at Brownstein, to get us started. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Let's get right into hardcore lobbying conversation. Right. How did you get interested in advocacy in the first place? I guess uh, my journey, um, I guess, started when I was uh, when I was a kid. I played in youth orchestras, and uh, there was a sense of uh, importance where I came up for uh, just music education. So, as soon as um, you know, uh, as soon as I grew up a little bit, I became more and more interested in giving back. Really, and uh, part of that seemed to be uh, a very important part is the funding of art and the importance of creativity admitting the importance of creativity and not treating it like a uh, bastard stepchild, I think is uh, very important for life in the country. Well, speaking of funding, congratulations in helping to secure $155 million for the National Endowment for the Arts in the Omnibus Budget Bill uh, that was just concluded by Congress. I understand you're joining Americans for the Arts and its Arts Action Fund for Arts Advocacy Day on Capitol Hill on March 5th, and you'll be lobbying for an increase to $167.5 million for the fiscal year 2020. Is that about right? That's right. What do you think your prospects are, given the stated intent of the president to terminate the National Endowment for the Arts? Well, what I know is as a musician, uh, touring all the time and talking to people, um, that uh, it would be very popular to raise it more than that. You encounter musicians who are pretty familiar with the NEA. I encounter parents and fans, now that I have mm-hmm. two or three generations of fans that show up, mm-hmm. that like to talk about these things, who a lot of them know a lot more about it than I do, who are 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 very concerned and very interested in seeing uh, in, in seeing their, their governments support the arts. And you explain your advocacy efforts to them? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you get some people who say, you ought to be worried about something that puts food on the table, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, to that I say, we can't all work in the grocery store, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, a, a healthy economy and a healthy culture uh, requires everyone to be pulling their weight, and being creative is a big part of the load. And what makes you, as a, as a well-known artist, particularly effective as an advocate on Capitol Hill? Well, I don't, you know, honestly, it's hard for me to say how effective it is. I think you have to, you have to be there. My uh, musician artist homies should all be there as well. You know, it, it, it is, uh, it's important to see uh, the people who do what I do cheerleading, mm-hmm. um, if nothing else. It's, it's very important. And, and uh, you know, I, I think it's something that gets missed is that 
uh, musicians, even a rock band, uh, knows how to build a business. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're not necessarily always just talking about how art makes you feel good, man. It's like I think we understand how to create, create a business, make it attractive, and uh, and and it is is a big part uh, of economy. And I, I think that's that's an important part of the argument. Well, you're homing in on the on the kind of arguments that typically are effective on mm. Capitol Hill. Can you talk a little bit about yourself? Not just as an artist, but on the other side, as a as a small businessman right. approaching your representatives and asking for help. Well, I think that's that's the angle I like to come at them with, and you have to at some point address the uh, the fabric of the society we live in. And um, I think all things should be represented for how important they are. If you believe that it's important to have a road to get to the mall, then that's something you need to make sure that you have. You need to make sure you you have an understanding of how to make everything past. Once you've gotten a roof over your head and you've got food on the table, almost everything we do is driven by our interest. Mm -hmm. And almost all interest has a creative artistic bent to it. So, you know, as someone who knows very little about economics, I think a, a, an, an important part to understand is people spend money and they are active and they do things when they're interested, when they're inspired. And and I think it's really important to represent that with the pocketbook for mm-hmm. the federal government. Mm-hmm. And as well, when you do that, there is a message that you send to the citizens, which is, we value this. This is important. The kind of kids we want to bring up are the kind of kids who understand creativity, understand how to communicate. All these things are tied into art. To, to cordon off art and to call it something that's only in a museum or is only something that is a, a sort of a frivolous a fun little thing to do is is to really misunderstand human nature and economics. You mentioned communication uh, for kids. Is there some special concern? You came of age a little bit before, well, before the texting and, and tweeting era, oh, yeah. right? So, so, so you're sort of bridging that gap. Is there a special concern in the digital era where people are communicating in fragments yeah. that they learn how to communicate more fully? And is arts education a part of that? I mean, you know, I haven't really thought this uh, this through what I'm about to say, but it does make sense that um, if you're going to communicate in little snack bite sentences, maybe you ought to understand poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's more information packed into the zip file of a, of a poetic sentence than mm-hmm. there is in, in say, uh, a, a manual on how to change a tire. That you, you, you can't be specific anymore if you're going to leave it to just a few characters. I think, you know, I, I, I think art and communication are really tied. And, you know, maybe it is more important, even now more than ever, to uh, to be able to understand if you're going to speak in, in, you know, iambic pentameter, be able to do it well. Well, that's that's a brilliant answer. And I think if the digital era inspired a renewal of interest in poetry, I think that would be wonderful. For, it would for, be. For all yeah. of us, for artists and for all the rest of us. Let's let's uh, switch a little bit to talk about uh, your career and, and your collaborators and, and your projects and how that relates to the advocacy work that you're doing. In a different context, you've expressed admiration for one of your collaborators, William Shatner, yeah. for doing every take differently. Right. Now, we all have this experience of going up and doing eight or ten lobbying meetings in a day. Mm-hmm. Is there something, do you take something away about the need to keep it fresh, hmm. for, you know, the Shatner approach to doing it slightly differently from meeting to meeting? 
Well, I guess you know both. Uh, both you know knowing the script is important, <laughs> right? You know, and right. and I would say that uh, Mr. Shatner would uh, would agree with that right. as an old professional. He's a pro. Um, I think what he does that is interesting, uh, besides knowing the script, which is you know if you're going from meeting to meeting, I wouldn't think you'd need to be terribly self conscious about repeating yourself. But mm-hmm. I think what is important is to be inspired mm-hmm. uh, in 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 the various takes and think if you're gonna you know if you if you feel like a windup that is just yep. on you know Groundhog Day, dude, and you're just over and over again saying the same things. I think it's important to understand, like a musician understands, that it's a new audience. Mm-hmm. It's the first time they see it, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I mean, all these concepts. Take it back to the uh, to communication and, and artists. All those concepts are um, are very important and very effective. I would even say uh, that the president at the moment, uh, it, you know, uh, has. An, an understanding from uh, you know having a, a career in television first that uh, the importance of those things. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can say just to interject from my own experience, thirty years of being either on the hill or, or facing the hill, those staffers who you're meeting with at four o'clock, they know if you're giving the same pitch for the eighth time. Really, yeah, it, it, it comes across. They can tell, and and it's hard to sustain it over that long a period, which is part of the reason I think you do try and stay a little bit fresh or customize it. Now, you probably customize it according to what you know about a congressional district or local conditions. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's partly based on your touring experience. Oh, yeah, you tell like, me. Thank you very much tonight, uh, Ohio. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Well, you do want to get it right, for sure. Especially in those towns like where, where it's it's two cities in one, like Minneapolis, oh, St. Yeah. Paul. You know, yeah, yeah. Good to be in Minneapolis tonight. Boo. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I, I think, you know, for, for me, I was repeating – you know, certain things that as soon as the internet came along, I stopped mm-hmm. because then everyone can just put this right. in you. It makes you feel like a joke. It's like, that's what he said last night, you know? And, right. um, but I do think you can repeat more than you think you can, as long as you're inspired and you mean it in the moment, you know? And that, and that requires some improvisation as well, which is its own art form. I think being in the moment being able to improvise is not, um, uh, it's not far fetched to say that the earlier that kids, uh, have that as a concept. They can even show that improvisation uh, as a musician is coming from the same exact center of the brain that speech does mm-hmm. very uniquely. Mm-hmm. You know, Also that when you're improvising, you're not thinking about yourself normally, which mm-hmm. is, I think is interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So self-awareness and improvisation are, aren't the same thing. Mm-hmm. Certainly that, that can find its way uh, in, in, into the classroom and, and would uh, find its way there because we as a society realized that it was important. And, and so as you travel, you have, you have a bunch of different projects um, going sometimes at the same time. Yeah. You're playing before audiences all over the country, larger audiences, smaller audiences, demographically different audiences, I imagine. Do you talk to your fans before a concert or before a performance or afterwards? And do you talk to them about issues? And do you vacuum up a little information from them that you can use on the Hill? Um, yeah, I do, because it's, it's a, um, I think my audience is pretty it's pretty politically diverse, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and um, I I, th- I think the, what I'm really lucky for is that, uh, and when I do uh, what we call uh, a master class, it's not in fact really mm-hmm. a master class, but it's a it's a you know a little Q and A session, and uh, yeah, people might. Like you know, for last year, really, all I did is talk about the NEA. 
I, I thought that all you know the audiences uh, in every part of the country needed to understand uh, what the NEA was and what the NEA wasn't. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't speak as a uh, as an expert on the subject, but I seem to know more than uh, than than a lot of people who already had a very strong opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, uh, what I take what I'm lucky for is that. They they all like me. <laughs> They're there because they they because we already get along, and that just gives me a certain sense of empathy for all the all the different angles that people can come from, all the different opinions, you know. So we can have a real civilized, you know. Some guy might might say, "Now wait a minute, that doesn't make that that means we're going to do it like China. It's going to be you you want to make music communist, you know. This is crazy stuff. You're like, well, actually, this is this is a very capitalistic endeavor, you know. Like mm-hmm. like we're we're trying to we're hoping that 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 the private sector kicks in you know this is what is trying to be done with the nea is to go okay here's some a little bit of money but you know that's one dollar we're hoping to 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 get eight nine back for it uh, in place that's actually kind of interesting to people who've never heard that before Mm -hmm. because you point Mm -hmm. out it's like i can say i played here in 1998 and it was not the nicest neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Now there's a theater over there, right. which has been invested in. And look, there's a cafe on either side of those things. You guys are parking in a private mm-hmm. lot across the street. And if you want to count up, it's not to do with the money that goes into the pockets of the promoters here, this, this stimulating economy. It's this, this street looks good now. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can walk down the street and you're proud of it. They begin to understand a little bit more the 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 importance of it that way. I remember when the, when the endowments were on the edge in the early 90s, I helped organized a congressional hearing at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. And we had well-known artists, Chuck Close, the photorealist Mm, painter, and Alec Baldwin, and Eric Bogosian, an interesting cast of characters. But we also had Arthur Levitt. He hadn't been head of the SEC yet, but he was head of the American Stock Exchange or something like that. And he was very eloquent about the economic benefit the multiplier effect multiplied over and over and over. You know, New York's sort of a laboratory like that. But I think a lot of small towns and college towns and places like that, you would describe the same phenomenon. Absolutely, and 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 it is. Um, you know, it's often the places in in the country that um, maybe don't realize that that this is really what it's about. This is you're really getting the. The, the good end of the stick here. And you can tell them, too, about when the NEA has been on the chopping block, like mm-hmm. with Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. and how that was handled and, and how it was viewed as a, as just from a dollar's point of view. Oh, we can't cut that. That's right. a great investment. Right, right. The difference between investment and spending, and I think your average person hasn't really come to think about that. And and they don't take it uh, kindly sometimes from a musician. It's like, what do you know about spending money? It's like, well, I know that I had to drive a van on fumes for four mm-hmm. years and move a, move a piano around. We had to balance a checkbook, something that some people uh, – have never had to do. Is it your experience that you sometimes visit communities where there are arts projects that have had economic impacts that were funded in part by the NEA, but no people there would probably be surprised to learn that that money came from the feds? That's right. It's like, keep your hands off my social security was a chant a while back. Exactly. I think people are surprised about that. And, uh, you know, if if we were dispatching really organized um, uh, few musicians and uh, get the right one that can articulate that in a quick soundbite is is good. I find from myself, because, you know, it's not my day job that um, 
I haven't learned how to articulate that quickly, but you can point to the theater mm-hmm. and 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 say, I think this the, the the misconception might be that even if you're talking about the theater, that they funded the whole thing, or right. or, the, or that they're given this private business like this this advantage over the other ones because of a political view that's right. in their pocket or something. It's it, it takes a little while to explain to them that you're just watering it. Mm-hmm. This is like pointing to this and watering. It's like if you have. If you've got your mall out here, and it's like, that's great. We support all those businesses that are in it. We can't get to it. Oh, we need a road. Okay, let's build the road. It's like mm-hmm. not, not directly going in the mall's pocket. Right. It's, it, it just takes a while. I think we're, we're, we're conditioned to sound bites that, that, that I think are hard to overcome. Well, that, that's, you keep saying this isn't your day job and making other modest <laughs> remarks, but you really do know how to talk about it. I, I want to go back to something that you've mentioned just now in passing. You said that... Um, your audience is diverse, yes. politically diverse at your concerts. In D.C., I think probably more so when you're up on the Senate side, people tend to see the U.S. as breaking down red versus blue. Mm-hmm. And increasingly it does politically. But you probably see red enclaves and blue states, blue enclaves. Absolutely. You have probably a more mixed view than a lot of politicians who know their own district or state but aren't thinking so much about others. Can you talk about that a little, What the kind of mixing that you see? Well, yeah, I think it's a real simplistic view to to think that it's really like that. Mm-hmm. I believe it is you do see evidence of of people going to their corners and being very unreasonable. Yeah. But you also see people standing together, together in rooms uh, large rooms, uh, especially when it comes to music. Music's very tricky because, you know, if I have an audience, and let's just say that it was 50-50 red-blue audience, mm-hmm. you know, th- they're going to get along just fine. Yeah. And, in fact, we can agree uh, pretty much on anything that we've been talking about right now. Those are all things. You know, I think we find when it's when it's a, when it's a, an issue and a solution, how would you deal this in your home? Uh, we can all come to the agreement that yep. every, everyone does it slightly differently, and that's fine. We all want the same thing. But if I bring up something that's one of the hot buttons, then I can't get harmony out of the audience. Right. So uh, a, a lot of what's happening at, at my shows over the years is people sing three-part harmonies. It's a gorgeous thing. Mm-hmm. I can stop that in two seconds by bringing up one – I can make one little joke or, or uh, support something that had a very you know, simplistic tone to it, and suddenly there would be no harmony. You know? And right. I think you know, what really what we're trying to do is, is uh, you know, another one of those concepts of, of music that works in society is harmony. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's important. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I don't want to disturb that. As a musician, you, you know, normally people would think, well, you don't want to divide your audience because you don't want to uh, cut them in half and, and, and only have half of an audience left. And that's actually not the way it works. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it works is you just make everyone have a bad day. Right. Like, you know, right. like if you have any empathy at all, you don't want people standing in the audience to be uh, psychologically abused by stuff that they've read mm-hmm. that now they, they, they believe. You don't want to hit those hot topics, you know. Right. That's basically it. I, that's a great explanation, and, and I just find myself wishing that I, I had you around when I was on the Hill. <laughs> I could have put you to work. Uh, you would have had a new day job. Um, you, have a, you have your own large social media following. Mm. Do you broadcast alerts, policy alerts, legislative alerts, alerts from Americans for the Arts via your social network? Do your friends do it? Does a Sarah Silverman do it? Folks like that. Well, yeah, I think we all take a different. Um, I'm I'm very um, very careful about it because I don't want to. Um, 
you know, you, you, it's like when you're playing music, you, you, you want to do it in a way that people don't fold their arms, you mm-hmm. know, because then mm-hmm. the message just doesn't go sure. to the heart at all. So uh, I, I have no interest in, in, in uh, joining that game where you're uh, putting sticks in the eye. And it's really difficult not, not to do that. Uh, usually what I do is if I do it, I go all in. Like, like uh, for um, – uh, when there was a, you know, when we were quite concerned that the the NEA uh, might be on the chopping block mm-hmm, again, mm-hmm. you know, I went ahead and, and wrote a, a, a piece that that said it all. I can't say something like that in in a um, on a tweet. Mm-hmm. I don't have that poetic uh, ability that that I want us all to have. I just I think I think as soon as you say uh, we need to make sure that we fund this. Then it really just creates a lot of energy of like you know this is welfare nanny state crap mm-hmm. comes over mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. your uh, your mm-hmm. your feed which I don't find very helpful at all. Right, right, right. You don't want to provoke that that sort of reaction. It's not helpful because then it provokes the other side as right. well. Right. Know? For me, like someone has to do it. Sarah does that. Sarah Silverman, she she's stick in the eye lady. <laughs> well, I was going to say, but that's her style that. on stage. That's also, right. You have you have to have that. That's that's what people come to expect out of her. People yeah. are very sensitive about. Uh, musicians with with uh, opinions, but I tell them I'm a small business owner. I'm a citizen. I'm allowed to uh, have my opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't sure. subject them to it if they have uh, if they've spent money on my concert and they show up. I'm probably not going to lecture them. Yeah, of know? course. But I, I, I'm perfectly uh, allowed to do that. But it just makes people feel bad. Right. Um, you're looking for ways to unify your audience, not yeah. And everyone has a different. I mean, we need the fighters too. Like, like I, I'm, I'm always cheering Sarah on when she does oh, yeah. those things. Yeah. I think they're, I think they're amazing. That's yeah. not my job. No, right, right. Uh, abrasive stand-up comics can get away with more. I mentioned working for Al Franken. Getting to shift from being one of those comics to being right. a senator who worked with Republicans was was quite a job because he, yeah. he had the skill set and he had the following. Yeah. But your job here is to pass legislation, not to point out why other people are wrong about everything. It just doesn't work. Well, it's a bizarre trajectory for someone to go from an art form, which is about 100% honesty, mm-hmm. to going into politics because it can't be 100% honesty. It's just not built that way. Yeah. You know, it's it's it, in order to get the job done, you can't be the the, the backbenching comedian very easily. It's it would be an awkward transition, I would think. No, I, I would frequently say to him after throwing out the staff and closing the door, I would say to him, "You're morally right, factually right, intellectually right, but think about whether this benefits to you to say it in public." Right. I mean, you're there to serve these constituents, which he took very seriously. I mean, yeah. he never lost sight of that. But if it's in their interests for you to keep stum about something, unfortunately, you have to keep those observations inside the office. The job is getting stuff for people. I don't think comedians by nature would be uh, um, would would like a staff of yes men. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. Like for when you think about what they have to do, yeah. you know, working with Sarah Silverman on the next um, um, Kennedy Center show she's coming into, and mm-hmm. um, she doesn't need me to say, oh, that's all great. Yeah. She doesn't want that at all. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of musicians do. They, yeah, they want you to tell them that it's great. But comedians I've found, and I have a lot of comedian friends, they, they want, they they like want the argue. truth. <laughs> they, they're combative. They, they're, combative. They're, they're Yeah, and they're, but they're very, very honest. That job is, is built around radical honesty. They're talking about well, Open their pants and stuff. <laughs> One way to put it, of course. You now serve as the National Symphony Orchestra's first ever artistic advisor. How does that inform your lobby? Well, does it inform your, your advocacy efforts? And if so, how? Well, it certainly inspires them. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, for instance, like working with the Symphony Orchestra. The Symphony Orchestra is a little... Uh, 
uh, you know, a, a little example of civilization. And you can see when that breaks down, and that they have uh, they, they they have they have a system, and they sort of have a rule of law. And uh, I I think it's actually it's I think the symphony orchestra itself to work is really inspiring because it is the, a, a symbol of civilization. It's people working together for a greater thing, and they all have to have each other's backs. And I think that that's uh, uh, if you see that deteriorate, I would be very scared. Interesting. Let's let's shift just a little bit. In 2016, and I, and I think this is something you're probably asked about frequently, you were the only member of the Artists Committee who attended both political conventions, Democratic and Republican. I just couldn't decide. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, then to my to my question, is it true that you and Mike Huckabee found common ground? We were homies for a couple <laughs> couple minutes. It was good. Um, he's really uh, he's really eloquently spoken about. Um, a specific part of the uh, economics of it, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's also, you know, I think he's a good like he has to na- he navigates that part of the world so much that, yeah, I, that yeah. I think he's he's a really good example of how of how to talk about. It. And he adds a little bit of his emotional attachment to it too. I think mm-hmm. he's a good he he was I learned a lot uh, working with him that day. Yeah. So behaving like a smart congressman, in other words, you if you're crossing part, I'm not assuming you're a Democrat, yeah. but if you're crossing party lines, you're looking for what do you not what are the things that you have that separate you from Mike Huckabee? That's probably pretty obvious. Yeah. But is there one thing that you have in common that you could work on together? Right? Yes, we were reaching across the aisle. Well, well, <laughs> yeah, look, no, it is. Like, there's no, never we, too much of that, right? No, no. Well, you know, uh, yeah, we we're both Southern. He's more Southern than I am, but we had that kind of Southern thing going on. And uh, he's a bassist. You know, he plays a six string bass. I think uh-huh. that's questionable thing to do, but if that's what he wants to do, mm-hmm. I don't really know what those extra two strings are for. Uh, but no, you know, we're just talking music, and I think that also proves its point when you've got two guys. I mean, there was a, there were a couple of interviews, and they were trying to make sure that they had their little you know thing that they're supposed to do, where they draw the, the wedge in there. And you know, I I was uh, I was uh, out. Uh, uh, helping Bernie Sanders where I could, and that was obviously quite the opposite of of, of Huckabee. He didn't care. I mean, you know, like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. he wasn't right. biting, and I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, I worked for Senator Barbara Boxer from California, we were helping the songwriters, and they weren't getting much traction with the Republicans. The senior Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which has jurisdiction over copyrights, was Orrin Hatch. Mm-hmm. Barbara knew that Orrin Hatch was a songwriter. Hmm. Um, he still collects royalties. He wrote some songs that were recorded, I think, by major, maybe gospel artists. Uh, songs of religious nature, but so Barbara arranged. Marilyn Bergman, sit down. You know, come on down, or and the Bergmans are here, and they talked songwriting. Similarly, when Franken came to the Senate, he had a song that he was working on, and he wound up in Hatch's office. He needed someone to write the bridge, basically. <laughs> you know, he had the lyrics, and and Hatch wound up playing a song that he had written as a testimonial to his friend Ted Kennedy that had Franken crying in Hatch's office and then crying again when he came downstairs oh, to tell no. the story. But, but it's an example of, or two examples of, of people finding the place where they can work together. Yeah, well, I mean, music has always uh, uh, been to me about communication. And uh, it's so packaged now. Uh, and it's almost like you have to have a, a, a license and you have to have a stylist and, you know, the, the, the right clothes to do it, a video. But, um, you know, I, I think for more of humankind's history, it was something that you just shared ideas mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, that's one thing where I think that my generation has fallen really short. We should actually be writing songs that are political in nature. And, and, and if it's difficult to do that without uh, hitting the hot 
uh, buttons, then we need to get better at it. You know, I just did a thing for uh, Washington Post, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I was I was like a reporter. I mean, I, I reported on uh, basically on, on on an event with uh, Rod Rosenstein um, and uh, and and uh, Jim Jordan. And, um, you know, I, I did it. Uh, it was a lot of work. It was hard because it's yeah. hard to, to, not to make something. Um, what we were talking about, just the hot the, yeah, that yeah, yeah. button where yeah. people just freak the hell out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I, it, it's more work. But I, I feel like I did it. And then I got all these nice notes from and a lot of politicians, too, saying no one of, of your era and younger is writing the songs that we need. And that th- th- they said that yeah. we need was interesting mm-hmm. to me. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, back in the day where you could rally around. A song, you know. Here's my cause. Here's what I think, and here's the song right. that goes along with it. We have been that shut up and sing stuff has happened. Is uh, uh, has been way too effective, you know. Well, I, I think everyone listening will be hoping that you'll be writing more of those songs about, well, about I, issues. It is. It is. It is something I've considered. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's it's interesting. It just has to be. I think you have to find the things that we agree need to be better, and then you inject the way that you know the belief that you think. Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's what what is it you want to see the the end result that you want mm-hmm. to be good well i heard you talk about in a in a different context musicianship talk about bob dylan and mm-hmm. and we still go back to to bob dylan there hasn't been much since dylan no. but he had a way of writing songs sometimes because they weren't concretely fact specific or right. explicit that could be applied and reapplied much like poetry as you were alluding to before you could simply you could unearth them or pull them back out and Masters of War, Blowing in the Wind, those songs make sense today. And they're um, morale boosters. <laughs> you know, I think that's that's part of it, too. It's like there there is, there's, yeah, the times are changing. That doesn't mean it's everything's going down. Mm-hmm. It's just that mm-hmm. things are are, mm-hmm. are, are changing. And, and, and I, I think that you do need to, like you say, there doesn't need to be like chock full of facts. Right. That's just like the poetic tweet, you know, like... Yeah, there's a lot of poetic tweaks that are completely fact-free <laughs> mm-hmm. floating out there right now. Um, you have a memoir coming out in July, yeah. A Dream of Lightning Bugs, A Life of Music and Cheap Lessons. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be talking about arts advocacy in this book? Yeah, I do. Oh, I, fantastic. I hit that in the, 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 uh, the, last, the last section of the book is about uh, what I think is the importance of following interests. You have to where you're interested, in, and that was something that I mentioned. I'm very interested in, and, and uh, you know, working for the Kennedy Center uh, and the NSO, and uh, you know, I can that's following my interest because uh, whatever they want to say about government jobs, they don't really pay all that well. So <laughs> I'm doing it because I, I mm-hmm. love it, you know. And you have a, a new show that you're working on called Song Lab uh, about bringing out kids' creative instincts yep. through music. Mm-hmm. How does that tie into your advocacy? Efforts are your right interest in, in advocacy. I think that's right, right at the dead center of it. It's the what I'm most interested in, which is I would like kids to be able to watch something, be involved in something that they felt, say, 20, 30, 40 years later, helped them communicate, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's public speaking or summing up an idea uh, cadence, uh, everything, everything that, that that you need to know about music, kids are already doing. You know, uh, uh, cadence, tempo, um, you know, uh, melody, motifs, all that stuff is in speech when kids are, are talking already. So, by teaching kids about music from what they already know, that was what was important to me. So, if you can have a kid make up a song. They can make up songs, and so all right. When while you're making up that song, 
let's direct it a little bit and we have a band and we're going to collaborate and make the songs. So the kids make the songs and the lessons come from what they already know. So my next last question, mm. would your dream job be to be chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts? <laughs> Is that what we're really pointing toward? Do, do I do I get to do I get to travel and see exotic places and uh, I, oh, I, only uh, within the United States, probably? <laughs> right. Wow. You know um, that 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 would be that would be pretty interesting. I I, I love I love helping. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the arts community, everyone is grateful for the work you're doing and the work that Americans for the Arts. Uh, is doing. It's really, it's wonderful. It's inspirational. You're doing so much to encourage kids' creative instincts at the same time. You're giving a lot, and it's really terrific. I just have one last Mm. question suggested by uh, something that came up in your uh, recent Google interview. Are you the guy who plays Ben Folds on You're the Worst? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> I am indeed. That's the best question I've ever got. That, that I said to myself, obviously, he knows the story, but I still have to ask the question because it's so ridiculously great. That was so good. Yeah, I was in, it was in a coffee shop, and this girl goes, I have to ask, because are, are you the guy that plays Ben Folds on that show? It's like... <laughs> That's good. That's an awesome moment, right? That's a good moment. I'm well, not ben, sure what it meant. But. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on this Brownstein podcast. Thank you. Thanks, a lot. thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.